wake up. That's what these parables are all about. So these warning parables is first the parable of the ten virgins. You could call that the parable of the ten, ten bridesmaids. Um, the parable of the talents and the parable of the sheep and the goats. And these parables kind of work on two different levels. Now when Jesus first told these stories, he was talking to his disciples. And he was talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's what he was talking about. Um, the problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees and teachers of the law of his day was that they had the scriptures that spoke about Jesus, the prophecies about him. They had tradition and all kinds of symbolism built into their faith uh, that should have pointed them to Jesus. But when Jesus showed up, they wanted to kill him. They really were missing out. They missed out on the fact that Jesus was the fulfillment of their own scriptures and tradition. And so in that scenario, the Pharisees are like, there's ten bridesmaids, the five foolish bridesmaids, who are not attentive enough to get to the wedding banquet, which we'll see later on. They, these are people that had been you know, entrusted with a fortune, a fortune, a huge amount of wealth from God, the master's money, but they hid it in fear, and they did not share it with anybody else. And in so doing, disqualified themselves. So that's what these parables are about. They're warnings to people like the Pharisees. And then on the parable of the sheep and the goats, you know, Jesus actually brings us to the end of time. He uses the image of sheep and goats to talk about the judgment of all people. And at that time, you know, those who supposed themselves to be Christians but ignored not only Jesus, and, but also God's people and his body throughout their lives, those people will say, Jesus will say, I don't know you. Now, those are things no one wants to hear. I think we all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, not, I don't know you, right? So these three parables, that the one level is rebuke against the Pharisees and religious teachers of Jesus' day. But on a second level, these parables were recorded for us as followers of Jesus in our day. We are people that have the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament. We are people that have the, his, the historical fact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection under our belts. We have all of that, but we don't always respond to that in a way that leads to salvation. Not everyone comes themselves to the banquet. Not everyone receives the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ the Son, forgiveness of their sins, and bears fruit for God. Not everyone. And there are people... Uh, that are sit in churches every Sunday that do not, uh, do not for themselves, take uh, the sacrifice of Jesus to heart. That their debt is canceled, they do not repent of their sins, and they do not bear fruit for God. And so, these parables are meant to wake us up. So I think it's a good thing to sort of um, take these, these parables and you know, not dumb them down, but really receive them as a gentle warning from God to us that we should test ourselves and make sure that we are in the faith, as the scriptures say. Now, especially for those of us who are part of the visible church, meaning people that gather together in Christ's name on Sundays, you know, if we're sleeping and we're asleep at the wheel, you know, that's not a good situation. Jesus is warning for us that some Christians will be wise, others foolish. And foolish ones may miss out on what the Father has you know, some will be faithful investors. Other people will sit on the fortune that God's entrusted to them. And in so doing, will lose everything and miss out. 
the comfort of these parables is Jesus is giving them to us while we're still alive, while we still have choices to make and about how we're using our time and how we are receiving the gospel. So in the midst of some dire warnings, Jesus shows us what it looks like to be one of his sheep, to be one of his disciples, which should serve as a comfort to us, especially those of us who are anxious in our souls about these types of things. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust you will discover that we have not failed the test. So, for those of us that are part of God's church, that consider ourselves to be part of his body, we have to be careful to see that we do not develop a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. This is a tendency for all of us. So we're going to receive directly from the Lord the warnings he has for us and examine ourselves using the markers Jesus tells us to. And I think if we are sincere in our faith in Christ and we love God and others, um, you know, that, that, that is, that's what it's all about. But it's good to hear his words, let them touch us the way that he wants them to touch us today. Um, as he teaches us to be wise servants who are waiting expectantly for God. So in our, in our parable today, and in the, in the parable of the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids, Jesus gives us a warning that we need to be wise and waiting be wise and show our wisdom by waiting for him well. Let's listen to Jesus telling the story. Matthew 25 1 says at that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any of the oil with them. The wise ones however took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come down to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Keep watch. Be watching, wise, while we're waiting for Jesus. So this story is one of those stories that loses, we lose, we lose a lot of um, understanding because the culture is different. The, the wedding customs are different than, than our wedding customs. So it really helps to look at what the wedding customs were like in Jesus' day to understand this parable. And I really love this stuff. So this is really interesting. Uh, Jewish weddings in Jesus' day had three parts. There's the engagement, the betrothal, and then the wedding feast where they're actually married. So the first stage is called the engagement. You can kind of hear Fiddler on the Roof playing in the back of your head, you know. Master of the house, you know, all that stuff. This is called the engagement. And here's what the engagement stage of a relationship, a marriage, entails. When children are still very young, just little kids, 
one father of the young boy will call a meeting with the father of a young girl, and the goal of the meeting is to establish something like a contract or a promise from the other. So it's incumbent on the father of the young boy to give a substantial gift to the father of the young girl so that he will agree to make a deal that his daughter will marry that young boy. It's basically this promise that the two families make to each other. So that's the engagement, a deal struck between two fathers where, our, where one promises his daughter to the other man's son. So in order for that deal to go smoothly, the father of the son has to try to figure out what is a good enough gift that I can give to the father of this young woman that he will accept this uh, engagement. And so what he would do is he'd ask around town. He'd ask friends of the other kid's father. And believe me, everyone talked. It was a jungle telegraph. And so the, the father of the young woman would probably say to his brother, hey, you know, if, um, if Bill comes by, tell him, you know, 40 sheep you know, and 12 barrels of olive oil. So by the time the father of the young, the young, uh, young man got to making the offer and trying to strike this engagement deal, by that time, he knew exactly what the father of the young girl wanted, and he knew exactly what it would take to, to get his yes. And if he didn't do his due diligence, and that father did not receive his gift and did not make the deal was a huge disgrace in the community. He just didn't do his homework. And that is your last chance to get engaged, those kids engaged. That's it. No deal. Very interesting. Community-wide event that these marriage ceremonies were. So the gift is accepted. The, the, one, the father of the boy determines what the father of the girl expects. He calls a meeting, he makes an offer, 100 sheep, 3 barrels of olive oil, whatever it is, and then they'll pronounce the young boy and girl are engaged as children. All parties agree. Now, you might look down on these ancient cultures and their strange customs and even calling foul on this whole process, right? This would not fly in our day. But remember, the divorce rate in the United States is really high. <laughs> so... I think everyone's like, maybe, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should just betroth people to each other, you know? It's like, are we going to do any worse than people do on their own? I mean, we have like 30 guys dating one girl on reality television. They don't even stay married. It's just a disaster out there. So I don't think we should be too judgmental. You know, in our culture, you know, love is, love is a feeling. And marriage is so precarious that you can fall out of love as fast as you can fall into love. People give up on each other and break their covenants and vows just because life changes or they change. You know, maybe we could learn something about commitment from other cultures as well. So the next step after the engagement of the children is to wait until the kids are old enough to get married. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. So when the kids are old enough, a year before the wedding takes place um, is the betrothal stage. So now, about a year before the wedding feast, the two children are of age, they personally enter a contract with one another. They strike a deal between the two of them. And after, it's kind of like, like marriage vows they make to each other. And after the vows, during this year of betrothal, there's no physical contact between the two for the entire year. So this is a very serious deal. Once two people entered into betrothal, they could not separate except by divorce, legally. It was taken that seriously. And if 
if the man died, the, the virgin that he was engaged to would be considered a widow. It's crazy. So what's the purpose of the year? Well, the father's going to love this, and probably the mothers will love it too. Um, the purpose of the year was to give the young man time to build a proper dwelling place for his bride and to plow his fields and get everything ready so he could show he could provide for his bride. And guess who decides when his fields are good enough and the house is good enough? His future father-in-law. It's like just crazy. It's, it's so like interesting. And I, and I learned, you know, nomadic people like Abraham, he was, he was a sheep herder and he had tents that they lived out of. And um, in that case, the young man would build an extra room onto the tent of his father-in-law. And that was where he and his wife were going to live. So really close, close in your business. So when uh, the, the future son-in-law cannot get married to his father, future father-in-law says, that's a good enough house for my daughter. And that's good enough plowing and fields for my daughter and crops for my daughter. And finally, he approves of the marriage. But this is why the betrothal period could take up to a year to happen, to, to, uh, to be completed. Um, that's why the ten virgins in our story, the leaves with the lamps, are told to be ready. Because no one knows the day or the time when the father-in-law is going to say, it's time for you, these guys to get married. And oftentimes, it happened in the middle of the night. The father-in-law thought, well, right now is a good time, and that was a little bit of a tradition. So that's why the ten bridesmaids in the parable are approached at midnight and told the wedding is on. You know, the groom and his party got to their house all excited. The wedding is on. The father-in-law said, okay. So in, uh, in, uh, in Jewish culture, in ancient cultures, you know, the marriage was, was taken extremely seriously, strong, unwavering commitment was expected, and, uh, and it was expected that there would be a good, reliable home and income for the new family. So they're set up for um, success. So the third and final phase after the engagement and the betrothal is the wedding celebration, the wedding feast. And this is a week-long affair. So this is how it goes. The groom and his groomsmen, whenever they were said, the father-in-law said, you're ready, they go to the bride's dwelling place, and she was, she and her attendants were supposed to be ready whenever, even if it's at midnight. And the wedding feast would begin with a parade from the bride's father's house through the longest route possible to get to the new house where they were going to live. And the reason for this was to involve the whole community in this celebration. Uh, you know, during this parade, everybody in the community could congratulate them and give them gifts or money and bless their coming marriage. So during this parade, everyone would just get out of bed and take a look at this. So once the bridal party gets to the groom's house, the festivities begin, the party starts. You know, they don't go on a honeymoon like we do in our day, but instead, for one entire week, people come to this party, eating and drinking together to congratulate the new couple, to hug them, have meals with them, have drinks with them for seven full days. You remember Jesus turned water into wine as his first miracle. And that was because there's a seven-day wedding and the wine had run out. So Jesus' mom said, Jesus, do something about this. And he turned the water into wine. And that was his first public miracle. Interesting, huh? That's because it's a seven-day wedding. So after seven days of celebrating and partying and celebrating this, this, this marriage... 
the groom's attendants, the groomsmen, would ceremoniously take the hand of the groom and place it on the hand of the bride. And that's the first time that they've really had physical contact this whole process. And everyone knows when that happens, the feast is over, the party's done. Everyone goes home, and the couple gets to be alone together for the first time. After their marriage is consummated, you know, they, they, the idea is that they are going to be spending their, their, the rest of their days in sickness and in health, good times and bad, um, in this relationship until death parts them. So in our parable, ten bridesmaids are sleeping at the bride's home when midnight comes. Ten of them, along with the bride, come out to meet the groom and his groomsmen. So, so, so far, so good. They're all dressed. They have their lamps, getting ready for the parade. Now, due to people, you know, talking and gossiping in the community, um, and because it was coming up on the one-year mark, there were signs that this was com- the betrothal was coming to an end. But the bridesmaids would not know the exact time, even though they knew it was growing near. So in our parable, the ten bridesmaids took their torches, that's what the, wor- the word is actually, torch, and went out to meet the groom's party. It says, five of those bridesmaids were wise, meaning they had an extra flask of olive oil in their pocket to keep their torches lit for the entire parade to get to the, uh, the new home from one house to the other. And it says that five were foolish. They did not have the necessary oil to keep their lamps burning. And they didn't have an extra flask of olive oil. And as you have seen, you know, the groomsmen were a long time in coming. Everyone had been asleep. But at midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom, in verse 6. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. You know, in Jesus' parable, the oil cannot be shared as there simply is not enough for the wise bridesmaids to share any without putting their lamps in jeopardy. So instead, the wise bridesmaids tell the foolish ones, go to town and buy some more oil. The problem is it's the middle of the night and no stores are open. Kind of like when when your infant child has a fever and you think, I need to get some Tylenol. You don't have any. You go to the store, they're all closed. That kind of feeling of panic. And the foolish bridesmaids head out to their near impossible task. And while they are looking for oil to buy in the middle of the night, the bridal party parade happens around town with five bridesmaids out of the ten. And after a long procession, the five wise bridesmaids and the groomsmen reach the new home and begin the week-long marriage feast. And Jesus shares a twist on this very familiar story, saying in verse 10, But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. These are words of Jesus. These are the red letters of the Bible. Jesus is warning us. Keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. 
So what's Jesus getting at here? He's warning Christians today. People that are dressed in the right clothes, listen to the right music, sit through church services week after week. People who consider themselves to be a part of Christ's body, they're part of the visible church. He's warning Christians to stay ready every day. Be ready for his return. Be ready for death. Be ready to face God. And this way of living is wise, according to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, it's our duty, like the bridesmaids, to remain ready and watching for his coming. Expectant. To remain alert. The torches of the women represent the attitude of expectancy. Keeping extra oil means that you expect that it could happen at any time and that you're ready for the time when the wedding finally comes. So the, the two lessons Jesus is teaching here, one, the coming of the bridegroom of Jesus Christ is so important that preparation should not be postponed to the last minute. Some things can't be postponed. And Jesus is saying very, very clearly, this is one of them. Do not postpone. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus and a part of his church, yet you are not living like it at all. If there's 50% of the, of, the bride, of, the, of the virgins that were wise and 50% they were foolish, who all looked very similar, could it be that some of the people who claim to know Jesus, who say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us, um, are people that are sitting in our churches? And the issue is not that God is ever, never willing to open the door. We know that's not true. He says to Christians, behold, I stand at the door and knock. You know, the issue is not that God's never willing to open the door. The issue is that there's a time for the door to, to be opening, a time when the door is shut. And in our, in our culture and in our own hearts, you know, we give ourselves unlimited time. But after it's over, you know, the time's up. It, sa it says in, in, in uh, Matthew 18, I believe, I think we read it last week, and Jesus does not will that any should perish, especially those that consider themselves part of his church. But the problem is actually committing to Jesus and living your life for him in readiness, you know, those things cannot be put off forever. And someone who says, and you've heard this before, I, I will repent and follow Jesus when I'm about to die. I'll get the timing just right. It's a transaction. Now that's not really a relationship. That person who might cry out, Lord, Lord, to God, is probably not going to be known by Jesus at the end of their life because this person completely lacks integrity and takes Jesus as a fool. You can't suddenly grow sincerity when you're about to die and then repent. You can't feel godly sorrow for your sin right before you die. Uh, you can't just make yourself be that person. You get the picture. You know, it says in the scriptures, only godly sorrow leads to repentance. And humble repentance shows that one actually believes in Jesus and has saving faith. So if someone says they are Christian and know God, yet their lives completely lack any evidence of it, 
and they hold the attitude that you know someday they're going to repent and follow Jesus at some point, you know, while sitting in chairs week after week and listening to sermons. It says it's possible these people could be shut out of the banquet and miss out because time is of the essence. You know, today, not tomorrow, is the day of salvation. You know, today is the the time to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the loving nudge to turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wholeheartedly and sincerely. You know, today is the day to decide and make yourself ready. We don't know the day or hour when Christ will return. We don't know the day or the hour when our lives will be demanded from us. And Jesus says only a foolish person would postpone trusting in Jesus for salvation and repenting of their sins until some last minute time. And the parable teaches that sometime will, that the time will come when you least expect it, when Jesus comes back for his bride, or when you, when you, when you die. And sincere repentance and trust in Christ from the heart will be all but impossible after a lifetime of putting Jesus off, hearing lots of sermons and being convicted, but never repenting, never responding, knowing what is true and good, and choosing willfully and consistently to keep on keeping up the charade and putting it off. But Jesus, he doesn't desire that any should perish. It says that the reason that he has not completed his work is because he is being patient that more people can come to repentance and faith in Christ. The five foolish bridesmaids said, Lord, Lord, let me into the banquet. But the door was shut and the time was up and the banquet, the master of the house turns out he, he didn't know them and never knew them. And these people, you know, they looked the part. They were dressed for the wedding. They had their torches. They just were not ready. They hadn't trusted Jesus' finished work on the cross for their salvation, never repented of their sin, never bore fruit for Jesus. And now the door is shut. But Jesus does not desire that anyone should perish. You know, especially, tragically, people that are part of his visible body of the church, people like you and me. He doesn't desire that any of us should perish, but that we'd live our lives as though today is the day to make a decision to follow Jesus. Not tomorrow, not next week. It's all about receiving the gift Jesus has given us on the cross, being declared righteous by God, and then bearing fruit for Jesus with our lives. You know, these are the things that matter. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, Paul says, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For Jesus says, In the time of my favor I heard you. In the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now this is uh, the thought of receiving God's grace in vain. You know, this is the time of God's favor that we're living in right now. The time when we're alive before Jesus has come back. This is the day of salvation. He wants to help his people. So when the door is shut, the time is up. So I think that the encouragement is don't just hear about the grace and forgiveness found in Christ. You know, his grace is powerful. You know, 
you don't want his grace, his, his powerful grace to be in vain. His, his grace is powerful. His forgiveness is completely sure to anyone who comes to him who humbly asks for it. And salvation is a free gift for those who repent and follow him. And once we are saved by Jesus and his disciples, we, be, we begin to bear fruit. We don't even know how it happens. We just start bearing fruit for Jesus. Um, taking the investment God's making in us and investing it and making more to present to him. But that decision can't be postponed because, again, you can't will yourself to repent and trust in Jesus on your deathbed. Uh, it's, it takes a sincerity of heart. So according to Jesus' parable, and I don't, I don't think this is necessarily statistics here, but 50% live life in the foolish way, putting off faith in Christ, even though Jesus doesn't desire that any should perish. But the one who puts him off, as we see in the story, may suddenly find themselves at the end of their life, or the time when Jesus comes back, and the doors have been shut. So today is the day of salvation. You know, do not receive Christ's grace in vain. Don't sit on this gift any longer. Receive it. You know, if the Holy Spirit is convicting you in your heart that this is something you need to do, do it today. Pray with somebody. So that's the first part of this, the first teaching of this parable. That you know, we do not know the day or the hour, so be ready. The second and final thing this parable teaches us is that one person's wise preparation and readiness cannot atone for another person's lack of preparation. Now, God does not have any grandchildren, only children. So some of us in the church have been lulled into a false sense of security because we hang around faith all the time. We hang around people of faith. We listen to maybe Christian radio. We've been sitting in church for years. We've been around other people who have faith, and their faith has really comforted us and impacted us. You know, some of us have a godly family member, like a grandparent or a godly parent who raised, who raised us and they prayed for us and they love us. If they could give us salvation, they would. If they, could take, if they had enough oil in their lamp to give it to us, they would. But they can't. It's a decision for each person to make. So it's not all about the right information but taking ownership of faith in Christ ourselves, trusting in Jesus' work, repenting of sin, bearing fruit to God, not becoming numb, numb to the scripture, numb, numb to Jesus' words, even numb to this warning today and putting it off. I love the scripture that says, wake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know, no one's faith can save you but your own. Your church's faith, your pastor's faith, your parents' faith, your friends, your faithful friends, that faith cannot save you. There's only enough oil in the story for the wise bridesmaids to get through this parade. There's not enough to share. Oil is non-transferable. We can be inspired by someone else's faith, but we cannot we cannot suck up their olive oil to make up for our lack of faith. Each person has only enough faith in Christ for themselves. You can hear about faith, but they can tell you about faith, but they cannot give you faith in Jesus. 
We have to have our own personal faith, our trust in Jesus Christ, our own repentance, our own turning from sin, our own conversion, and our own fruit that shows evidence that we've really received the forgiveness of Christ. And we can't postpone this. Because in the end, the door, there will be a time when the door is shut, but today is the day of salvation. You know, if I were to <clears throat> if I were to plan a wedding and send you an invitation, and it was um, you know, September 16th, 3 o'clock, here's the place. Choose what meal you want. Salmon, roast beef, chicken, on your invitation. Send it back. And you were to show up to the wedding venue on October 18th, and you're just so angry. What is wrong with Nathan? Why would he invite me to this banquet? There's not even a banquet happening. It's just too late. That's not when the banquet was. We would not consider Nathan to be unloving or Nathan to be unforgiving, uncompassionate, because Nathan gave you the right information to get to the banquet. You just postponed it forever. And now the doors are shut. There is a time, the Bible says, when the door shuts. We must choose to have faith for ourselves. Not to ride on other people's faith, not to look the part, but to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. To receiving the forgiveness of Christ, laying the grace that flows from Jesus, the gift, that's what grace means, the gift of God to flow into our lives, to wash over us, to cleanse us, to receive that gift where Jesus says, your sins are canceled, and also, I give you my righteousness. And I give you my very spirit. That you might know me. No longer do people say, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we only have enough faith for ourselves. We have to get our own faith. I think when Jesus warns us like something like this so, several, so many times in his word, I just want to make sure we get the message. Now, there's a time for everything. And Jesus does not desire that any should perish, but that all would come to saving faith, full of fruit and readiness for death, Lord Jesus is coming. And God loves us too much, and Jesus loves us too much to leave us asleep, so he gives us this unsettling teaching about the banquet. To say salvation can't be postponed. So each of us before God must be ready through trusting in Jesus' work on the cross and allowing God to begin to bear fruit in our lives by his Holy Spirit, showing that we are his children. Moving on to the parable of the bags of gold. This is in the same vein. This is a parable about faithfulness. So if the first one's about readiness, this one's about faithfulness. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted them with his wealth. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work. 
and gained five more bags of money. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your father's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your bag in the ground. Here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I I harvest where I had not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that my money when I returned, would have received would have been received back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him, give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worth, worthless servant outside, into the darkness, where there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth, regret. So again, much like the parable of the ten bridesmaids, this is a parable about faithfulness, readiness, about investment. And the per- it didn't really matter if, if a servant got two bags of gold, you know, he got another bag of gold. Five bags, a couple more bags. Each servant, no matter how much they got, that was more than the original amount, were lauded by the master. Good job. But the third servant, believing that the master was someone who was dishonest, says he harvested where he had not planted, believing things about the master that were untrue, it says in fear he hid the bag of gold. So the master said to him, why didn't you, just, why didn't you at least put it into the bank so I could get interest? Instead, you believed the wrong things about me, not knowing me, not knowing my heart. And you buried it. And he was thrown out of the banquet. Thrown out outside. Where it says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus is originally speaking, of course, to the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had the Old Testament, had the, everything about Christ, the law, the prophets, and they just sat on those things and didn't share them with anybody. In other words, they didn't bear any fruit. They didn't, the grace of God had no effect on them. And unfortunately, the same thing can be true of us. God gives us each different amounts depending on our ability. God is not a harsh taskmaster. He's not someone who harvests where he doesn't plant. He's an honest, true, and good and gives us everything we need 
to bear fruit for him. But when we, and it doesn't matter how much we bear, just that we allow it to bear fruit, that we have faith in the Lord Jesus, we receive his grace, and we dedicate our lives to his lordship and to bearing fruit for his kingdom. But if we have all of that good news, we have all of that, uh, that wealth entrusted to us, and we do nothing with it, sit on it, keep it to the side, it's the same message as the parable of the ten bridesmaids. The same message. That now is the time to receive the work of Jesus, to receive faith, and to let that faith go deep and bear fruit for God. Not missing out. Because we have, us as Christians in the church, we have the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament, we also have the New Testament, and we have the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection in history and his promise to be with us to the end of the age. You know? We know, uh, and God's given each of us something to, to plant and to grow and to water and to invest. And he's looking for a return on his investment. And now is the time to do that. Now is the time to invest. Now is the time to see the interest come in and to see see the power of God at work around us. But if we are not, if we are like the five foolish bridesmaids, and we are not looking at what God's given us and, and just sitting on it, it's just like sitting on the invitation. We don't really know God. So, be, so Jesus is saying in these parables, be alert, be awake, be ready, be faithful. Today is the day of salvation. You know, this is all this time that we have when we're living, when we're hearing these words from Jesus, is a time that we can really take to heart faith for ourselves, put our trust in Jesus, receive salvation, and begin to bear fruit for God. There will be a time when that time is over, when the master will come back, the banquet will be thrown. And if we just sat on it, and we have not invested it, received it personally, not borrowing from other people's faith, but receiving it for ourselves. You know, what a tragedy to be locked out of the, of the banquet. So I'm going to invite the worship team forward. We're going to be singing the Lord's Prayer together. Again, I have no idea if, if uh, literally 50% of people who view themselves as Christian are wise and 50% are foolish. That doesn't really matter to me. The numbers don't matter, but it's true that we need to be awake and alert because just because we're around church and in churchy things, it doesn't mean that we have personal saving faith that's effective in our own lives. So now is the day of salvation for our trust in the Lord Jesus and allow him to bear fruit in our lives, fruit that will last. So as we sing this song, let's pray to the Lord.